You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Yeah, welcome back. And as always, again, it's so great to be with you online and everybody here in the room today. Uh, welcome to our next to last week in our series called What About? If you're just joining us, uh, you can see from the video there, we've been looking at some different starting points for Christian faith, asking some big questions about how we begin to have faith in God and some arguments for faith in God and Christianity in particular. Uh, so far, more or less, we've explored some emotional starting points, cultural starting points. You can catch up with all those messages on online. Last week, you may know that we made a shift. And so for these last three weeks, we're taking a look at some of the more rational based, intellectually based arguments for faith in God in Christianity in specific. Next week, I'll be taking a look, concluding our series by looking at reasons why I believe you can, you should have faith in the person of Jesus Christ. But today I want to back up just a bit and do something else first, which is to lay out why I believe you can and why you should trust what Christians call the Bible, which includes what you may hear me reference as the Old and New Testaments. But before I go any further, say anything else first, let me say this first, which is my faith, my faith as a Christian doesn't stand or fall based on the Bible first. My faith as a Christian stands or falls first, as the apostle Paul put it, on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because the Bible did not produce the Christian faith, the Bible did not cause the resurrection, and the Bible did not start the Christian church. What we call the Bible, and specifically what we call the New Testament, was produced in response to, as a result of the resurrection, and it was the resurrection which produced the Christian faith and the church. We'll look at that at length next week. So a Christian's faith doesn't fall, rise or fall, first or foremost, in that sense, on the Bible. Again, it rises or falls first, foremost, on the historical fact of the resurrection. Again, we'll look at that next week. But nonetheless, the Christian church throughout history, before there was ever Protestant church, Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox, has always insisted that not only can you trust the Bible, but that it is, here's the word, authoritative for the Christian's life. That is, it exists above you, above your family, above your culture, above your government, above your feelings, and that the Bible, the Christian scriptures, has the final say in your life. So today, I want to try to lay out three objections to that claim. Then some counter arguments to those objections, to the claim, to the claim that you can and should trust the Bible as authoritative in your life, all right? So the three categories of objections we're going to look at are sort of like buckets of thought here. You can see them as we go. We're going to look at these three. First, we're going to look at why people say that you can't trust the Bible scientifically, why they would say you can't trust it culturally, and finally, why people would say, you know, I can't trust it personally. Like, it doesn't fit me. It's going to turn me into like, a robot or something. So, but I'm going to do my best here with these three. I'm going to go faster than you like. Probably not talk about all the stuff that you would hope that I would say. So once more, your trust and sympathy are welcome before I begin. All right, here we go. Let's dive into these. Objection number one. Uh, people say you can't trust the Bible scientifically. And I hear this objection sort of come out like this. A lot of ways this can be put. I only have time for one today. Sort of put like this. Science has disproven the Bible's creation account 
Therefore, you can't take the Bible literally. So what do we say to this? Well, actually a few things here. First, when it comes to taking things literally, let me say this. I don't and do and do and don't and don't and do take the Bible literally. All right. What I mean by that is that I take the parts literally that are intended to be taken literally and all the parts that aren't meant to be taken literally. I take either truthfully or meaningfully or poetically or all the above or here is the key. Whatever the author's intent is within the type of literature that you're reading in the Christian scriptures. And let me suggest to you, that is actually the honest way to go about examining any type of literature you read ever. Because you don't necessarily, for example, fact check like poetry or that novel that you're reading, but you do fact check historical accounts. So let me try to show you how this works. And I promise I'm going somewhere with this. In the book of Judges, you everyone go to Judges, there's the famous story of Deborah and Barak. Uh, sorry, Deborah. <laughs> Deborah and Barak. I got it right first service. Uh, Deborah and Barak and the defeat of Sisera. He is a Canaanite warlord, the army, uh, the captain of the army that was oppressing the Israelites, a uh, real bad guy. And Deborah and Barak, and at the end of the story, sort of the original Rosie the Riveter shows up. Her name is JL. She's handy with a hammer. And she, with one single nail, puts an end to Sisera's reign of terror. Judges 4 is your basic historical narrative account of that story in that battle. Horses, chariots, spears, armies, etc. But Judges 5, next chapter, is another account of that same story, only it's in the form of of a song. It's called the song of Deborah and Barak. And in Judges 5, they sing a song about the battle in Judges 4. And they say things like this. Let's look at one verse. They sing this from the heavens, the stars fought from their courses. They, the stars fought against Cicero. Now, did the stars come down and drive a chariot? No. Did an actual sun from another galaxy fly through space to pick up a sword and stab a bad guy? No. This is poetry. This is song. This is clear. Though it doesn't rhyme because Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme. This, it does bear the hallmarks of Hebrew poetry, which are parallelism, which is when two consecutive verses say the same thing in a different way. Strophic repetition. And sometimes, like here, metaphorical language. The point of the song is that God was involved. God worked through people through the process of a battle. He won it. And to God goes the glory. Yay. All right. Two different looks at the same account, but the difference is clear. And most Bible literature is clear. The challenge comes when there's a question as to what type of literature we're looking at. Genesis 1 sort of the first, the first of two creation accounts there in Genesis. Genesis 1 is that kind of literature. There is an abundance of repetition, abundance of repetition, stuff like, and God said, and God said. There was evening and there was morning, evening and there was morning, and it was good, and it was good. There's a lot of repetition, which makes it seem like Hebrew poetry, like a song. But there's no parallelism there in Genesis 1. So is it, is Genesis 1, poetry and meant to be taken truthfully, figuratively or is it historical narrative and meant to be taken truthfully and literally I want to tell you there are plenty of well-respected PhDs on both sides Jesus loving and Jewish uh, who are on both sides of that question and they would give you different answers to the question was the Bible created in a literal six-day period I think there's a question here 
And if Genesis 1 is a song, if it's aimed more at why God created and less how, then that means something different, doesn't it? When it comes to talking about science processes. So to the objection that science has disproven the creation, the Bible's creation account, well, let me ask then. Well, has it? Has it? And to the objection that the Bible is wrong when it tells you that the earth was created only recently, I would ask you, well, where does it, where does it say that actually? People say, well, look at the genealogies there. Say, okay, all right. The genealogies in Jewish culture were written to make a theological point, not to capture every single generation. Because when the Bible uses the word begat, as in Jim begat Joe, John begat Sally, right, or whatever, uh, that word means generated, as in Joe came from Jim's line somewhere. This is a feature called telescoping, and it focuses in on key individuals, key lives in a story. And like a telescope, it doesn't look in every direction. It focuses on what's in front of it. And so a telescoping genealogy, which these are, captures the theological point in front of the author, the point the author is trying to make. This happens throughout the Bible, including in the genealogies of Jesus Christ. Jewish genealogies, therefore, are helpful in making theological points, but they're less helpful as reliable markers for dating the origin of the earth. What's my point? My point is this. What the Bible does tell you, what we can know that it says is this, that God began the universe. He created it ex nihilo, out of nothing. He created it for and out of love. And what, so what Genesis 1 does do is remove, therefore, the possibility of evolutionary theory as a strict worldview, an ultimate worldview, and an explanation for every single thing about you and me and our morals and our ethics. We know that God made the world on purpose. We looked at this at length last week. Why he did it again, out of four, and four love is a triune God. But every specific process in a specific timetable that he's used, well, a strong case can be made. And I would suggest to you, that Genesis 1 is not aimed at capturing that for us. Number two. Number two, second objection. Still with me? Some of you are saying, maybe. All right. Number two. Here's the second objection, and I'm going to spend most of my time today on this one, is that you can't trust the Bible culturally. All right. And this is the space where most people get hung up, and that's actually a larger point I'd like to make, which is that specific objections to the Bible are actually coming and going based on what's in or out or what culture says here or there. Like yesterday I was in my neighborhood and I saw like an eight-year-old dressed like he was 1985, like he's from Back to the Future, like denim jacket, lime green sneakers on a skateboard, acid wash jeans. I thought, man, see the styles come and go. Objections to the Bible come and go based on culture. All right, which leads me to the to need to do this, to put out a giant disclaimer, giant disclaimer, which is this. If you're saying today, or maybe your friends are saying to you, or one day you say this, you come to the Bible and you say, listen, the Bible offends me. Like, I can't believe what it says because the Bible is so offensive. The Bible is so regressive. Let me just ask you, well, which part do you mean is offensive to you? Because unless you're like Richard Dawkins and you think the whole thing is junk and garbage, surely you don't mean every single part. Surely you must like some part, like the parts about like caring for the poor, the parts about loving your neighbor, the parts about turning the other cheek. I mean, do you not like those parts? You say, well, maybe I do. Okay. So start by asking if you're offended today, ask, well, which part of the Bible offends me? And then second ask about that part. Am I sure 
that it's teaching me what I think it's teaching me. Am I, thank you, thank you, That's what I think it is too. Am I sure it's teaching, but it's true. Am I sure it's teaching me what I think it is? Let me give you one example briefly. Over the years, I've heard this example countless times. People say, Morgan, I'm offended that the Bible teaches me to be a polygamist. It teaches and supports polygamy. It's so outdated. It's so demeaning of women. And so what I say in return is like, number one, I agree with you. I don't like it either. I don't want to try it. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But second, would you tell me where the Bible teaches you to be a polygamist? They said, well, just look in the Old Testament, right? Like there's all the patriarchs, multiple wives, concubines, like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, King David, the list goes on. Okay, okay. Are you sure it's teaching you to be a polygamist? Arguably the leading scholar in Hebrew narrative today is a, is a secular Jewish professor, not a Christian. His name is Robert Alter and his book, it's a great one called The Art of Biblical Narrative. He talks about how to read and process story. Specifically Hebrew narrative, as you would guess by the book title. And his point is basically this, again, not a person of faith, but he says this. If you think that the Bible is teaching you to be a polygamist, you don't know how to read a story. He goes on to say, look at every single account of polygamy in the lives of Bible characters. It only causes pain. It only causes heartbreak. There's only spousal rival, kids rivalry, family disintegration, heartbreak. Who reads that and think, you know, I ought to try that, you know? No. If you grew up like I did watching TV in the 80s and 90s, every sitcom, you know, this always had an episode or some character tried drugs. It was the don't do drugs episode. What happened? It always ended in catastrophe. They learned their lesson, right? Bad things happened to them. Would you ever watch those shows and think, you know what? They're all telling me I should try drugs. No, why? Because you get the cultural context by showing you characters whose lives are only and every single time ruined by drugs. They're actually trying to tell you, come on, Nancy Reagan, Just say no, right? Don't do drugs. And so if you wanted to characterize Hebrew narrative where it shows you only lives ruined by polygamy in primogeniture, you could call it God's don't do polygamy episode, right? So if you want to know why I think polygamy is a bad idea, it isn't just because the Bible tells me in the New Testament. It's because it shows me in the Old Testament, right? My point is if you're offended by something in the Bible, ask or am I sure it's teaching me what I think it's teaching me? One little last thought experiment, just for a moment, before I get into two hot button, hot potato objections. Let me, let's just assume for a moment that the Bible is not the product of any one culture, okay? But it's actually divinely inspired, which I believe. What would that mean? Well, it would necessarily mean that the Bible is going to offend every single culture at some point. If you found a culture where nothing in the Bible or nothing in some holy text offended a group of people, you could rightly assume it was the product of that single people group. For example, there's this little basketball tournament going on right now. I'm a University of Houston alum. All the news I read about Houston, guess what? It's exciting. It never offends a Houston fan, right? Man, Houston's great. They're going all the way. But to another group of people, say, hmm, to a college whose team was somehow eliminated last night, sorry, OC, there comes the offense, right? Why? Because it's not written by you. It's written by another group. It doesn't offend that group. My point is this. If the Bible only offended Western people, but not African, or only African people and not those in the Middle East or the Far East, that would be problematic. 
But the truth is the Bible offends every culture at some point. And typically the point at which it offends your culture is the point at which another culture embraces it. A few years ago, I was having, a co- uh, having coffee with a young man from the Middle East, and we were exploring the parable of the prodigal son and the love of the father towards the younger son. And about halfway through the whole study, about halfway through, he paused, he looked up, and he said, I'm offended by this parable. Offended by this parable. He asked me, is this father actually forgiving the younger son who betrayed him, uh, humiliated him, squandered the family inheritance, ruined the family standing and reputation in the community? Is a father forgiving him? I said, yes. He said, is this teaching me I should forgive my enemies? I said, well, it teaches you a lot of stuff, but yeah, that's, that's part of it too. He said, okay, this is why I cannot become a Christian. People have hurt me and hurt my family and I will not forgive my enemies. See, we are drawn to that parable in the West at exactly the point it pushes perhaps another culture away. All of that now is a giant disclaimer to get to two cultural objections people have to things they read about in the Bible. We're going to talk about them. Slavery and homosexuality. Slavery and homosexuality. Deep breath. Here we go. First, slavery. All right. Over the past few years, <laughs> this one's popped up a lot and not so much from uh, skeptics in academia, more from like people on the street, internet, chat room kind of objection. And I think the reason why will be clear as we go. What do we say? Well, in the Hebrew, the Hebrew word for slave is the word eved. It's E-B-E-D, but you pronounce it with a V. Eved. It means slave, but more like a debt servant. That's what it's connoting, a debt servant. Because what eved means and what we think of when we hear the word slave are two radically different things. First of all, in a day like it was back then, a day without banks, a day without bankruptcy laws, if you fell into debt, you would become an eved, a slave to the one that you owed until your debt was paid off. This was a way, obviously, of actually protecting you if you fell into debt because it wouldn't last for a lifetime. And if you were the average landowner or business owner, without banks and bankruptcy court and lawyers and all that, it would protect your rights as well. But look at this, Exodus 21. Slavery through kidnapping was expressly prohibited and a crime punishable by death. The only slavery allowed was a kind of indentured servant. And that's sort of like our English expression. You became an eved. You worked to pay off a debt. And once it was paid, you went free. Listen to how those eves, those slaves, had to be treated. If you struck your slave, Exodus 21, 26. If you knocked out his tooth, he went free. If you killed a slave, you would be killed. It's a capital offense. Slavery was never for life, Deuteronomy 15. It could last only up to seven years. Most cases, less. The master was never allowed to break up a family. The master or the owner could not turn around and resell another Eved. The Eved had the right to go to court and pursue his rights. And if an Eved, a slave, ran away from his master and you found him, you were required to help rehome him or her in the city, the place of his or her choice. Why? Because the presupposition was if that slave ran away and would rather run away than work off his debt in less than seven years and then re-enter society, if that slave ran away, it was because he was being so mistreated. It caused him to run away. And you were required to help that runaway, Eved, find a new home. You contrast that with the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 in the U.S., in which you were required to find, capture, and return runaway slaves, or you were liable 
And you can see the chasm, the vast, uncrossable chasm that existed between that culture's definition of slavery and the 19th century Western world. Slavery never lasted longer than seven years. If you knocked out a tooth, they went free. If you kidnapped someone into slavery or killed your slave, you would be put to death. If a slave ran away, he went free. Does that sound like what the United States and other nations did? Does that sound like race-based, for-life, kidnapping-based, break-up-the-family, whole-person ownership? No. So does the Bible permit or condone slavery? Well, it permitted indentured servanthood as a way of paying off debt, keeping your honor and access to credit long-term, but it does not and did not permit what this nation and others have done, which is why, though many Christians sadly inexcusably to the shame of the Christian church and the the person of Christ. They used the Bible to justify why they did. Many more Christians worked for abolition because they saw rightly that 19th century slavery could not possibly be squared with biblical teaching. First objection, slavery. Second one, homosexuality. Now, before I even try to say anything about this, again, appreciate a massive dose of your sympathy for trying to address a challenging subject in a culture where even talking about it can create a firestorm. Let me say this. I do think that the Bible's teaching on sexuality and specifically homosexuality is an issue, a topic that offends specifically our culture. But again, and back up to a moment ago at the beginning of the message, if you say, I'm offended and what the Bible teaches about anything like sexuality. And therefore Jesus Christ cannot be God and could not have been raised from the dead in human history. Those two things don't go together. It's a non-starter, non-sequitur. Remember the Christian faith, the Bible does not hang on its teaching about sexuality. It does hang on whether or not Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. So even if you're offended by what you're going to hear next, that doesn't mean That Jesus Christ isn't God, wasn't raised from the dead, and could not be the savior of the world. And by the way, back to that same conversation with my friend from the Middle East. Although he despised, as you heard, the Bible's teaching on love and forgiveness. He applauded repeatedly its take on sexuality and marriage. Because it resonated largely with his culture. Why is ours right, his wrong, vice versa? And don't forget, even what you and we believe about sex and gender, it's changing all the time in our culture. Did you, did you catch, because I know you did, that recent documentary about Britney Spears? Men and women alike now, because of, of that documentary, are falling all over themselves apologizing for how they treated her, how they spoke about gender and women even 10 years ago. You say, Morgan, well, that needed to be changed. Okay, I agree, but my point still stands. 10 years ago... A lot of, maybe most people in our culture, including a lot of women, thought about talking about women and gender in a certain way was acceptable. It's not anymore. But who's to say it won't change again in another 10 years? Sophisticated, talented, educated, culturally elite people in this nation have literally flip-flopped their deeply held beliefs on sex and gender in a decade. Why should we throw out Christianity and the Bible and its view of sexuality when our views on sexuality are changing By the minute. But having said that, say this. The Bible doesn't talk so much about homosexuality or other forms of sexual expression, though it does, as much as it does talk about what sex is for, how it is to be used. And let me say three things quickly about that. First, sex in the biblical view was not designed primarily to be a form 
of self-fulfillment, self-discovery, self-empowerment, self-exhibition. It was designed primarily to be a form of self-giving. Self-giving as a means of creating and sustaining a community called a family. It's supposed to reflect the physical vulnerability and bodily self-giving that is part of whole life, complete person commitment. In other words, to be physically, sexually vulnerable with someone you are not legally, emotionally, permanently committed to is to misuse the sex act. Second, sex is also a way for the diverse, here's the word, glories of male and female to be reunited. The genders have unique glories that can only come together when diverse Glories of those genders are commingled. Homosexuality then uses sexuality in a way that does not complete creation. Third, Jesus Christ, in one of his few statements on homosexuality, affirms the marriage covenant as being between one man and one woman. You can read it, Mark uh, 10, Matthew 19. Instead of going down the list in Jesus Christ saying, check this, this in, that's out, that, mm, think, think about that, let me get back to you, maybe, I don't know. No, he affirms one thing. He says, what God has joined, created, affirmed. One man, one woman in a covenant of marriage for a lifetime. Let no one pull apart. Now, most, I would say, Christians, even those who don't like this, still acknowledge this, yeah, they'll acknowledge, yeah, that's what the Bible teaches at a basic root level. They may try to get out from underneath it, work its way around it, say times have changed, we don't like this. But there's remarkable consensus historically Even today, that at a root level, this is the Bible's view. And again, if that offends you, consider again, please, like most objections a person may have, your objection to this might be culturally rooted, which again, might just point to the reality that the Bible is not the product of any one culture. Before I move on, let me also tell you what the Bible's view on sexuality is. Luke chapter 10, Jesus gives the parable of the good Samaritan. The Samaritan came upon his so-called enemy, a Jewish man on the side of the road, beaten, left for dead. And Jesus told this parable and the Samaritan in the parable cared for his so-called enemy. He bandaged his wounds. He paid for his care and recovery. The Samaritan risked his own reputation to simply acknowledge that broken man's need, his humanity, someone beaten up pretty badly by life. The point is, Jesus is saying, we are supposed to love and care for those even with whom we disagree. It doesn't matter what your belief is. You're supposed to show care and love and concern and warmth towards others, even if you disagree with them. Therefore, any Christian who has abused someone on the LBGTQIA plus spectrum, made derogatory jokes about, used slurs about, or has even been cold towards them, needs to repent because those things also contradict the teaching of Jesus. And Christians also need to, therefore, own the church's failing, which we have here, failing to demonstrate warmth and care for those who are different than we are, what we believe, and to bring all of our attitudes in line with all of Jesus' teaching. I mean, no one is saved by being a heterosexual. A Christian, is a, a Christian is a person who is saved by their faith in Jesus Christ alone. That is the gospel. And then, yes, to follow Jesus means if he's Lord of your life, he has the final say-so over how your body is used and expressed. But again, first things first. And now, finally, final objection. Some of you are saying, thank God. Uh, <laughs> Final objection, you can't trust the Bible personally. Like for you, for where you are now, today. Now, I can't do everything with this one, but what I am gonna try to do is speak to this. 
to the idea that someone who accepts the Bible as authoritative in their life, it'll just turn them into like a mindless robot, automaton, can't think for themselves, right? And we, therefore, we can't trust it to guide us personally right now. And right now, I'd like to show you how I believe the exact opposite is true. That trusting, taking the Bible as authoritative in your life is actually the very entry point. It's the starting point for a beautiful, warm, vibrant, healthy relationship with a God who knows and made you personally. What do I mean by this? All right, let me give you a story here. After, after the resurrection of Jesus, okay, going to the gospel of Luke chapter 24, after that moment, at the very end of Luke's gospel, we find in the story two early Christ followers. They're on a road right outside Jerusalem on a little, in a little town called Emmaus. These two men were crushed because their rabbi, their master, Jesus, had been killed, had been crucified, and because Twitter had not yet been invented, they didn't know Jesus was back alive. Right? And as they walk along, they actually incredibly run into and have a conversation with the risen Christ on Easter Sunday. And Jesus spends time with them, as we're going to see. He basically does the world's greatest Bible study with them. He has a meal with them in their home, and they figure out who they're speaking with right before Jesus leaves them and goes back to his original group of disciples, Easter Sunday night. And after Jesus leaves these two men, this then is the conversation those two men have with each other. Look at Luke 24, verse 32. They, these two, asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Now, the word heart is the word here in the Greek, the word cardia. It's the word that is used to describe both the seat of the emotional and the physical life. In other words, they were saying to each other, Dude, wasn't your heart like on fire? Were you about to have a heart attack? I was about to have a heart attack. About to blow up on the inside as we saw for the first time maybe what the Bible was all about. What had happened to them? They learned to read the Bible like Jesus showed them. What was that? Here it is. Here's how Jesus teaches us to process and come to the Bible. Look back in verse 27. Here's what he told them. And beginning... With Moses and all the prophets, wouldn't you like to be there for that Bible study? Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And he says the same thing to his, again, original disciples a few verses later. Uh, He said to them later, this, John, Peter, Andrew, Philip, this is what I told you all while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written, what's the word? About me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. See, this is Jesus telling you that the whole Bible doesn't just point to him, doesn't just predict him, though it does that, but the whole Bible is the word, here's the word, about him. Yes, there are stories. Yes, there are commandments. Yes, there are wisdom literature. It's designed to tell you how to live, what to do, all that. But if you don't catch not what it's all about, but if you don't catch who it's all about, first, all the stories, all the commandments, all the wisdom stuff is gonna do, it's gonna crush you. Because you can never live up to it. What does that look like? Let me give you two examples of the difference here in approaches to scripture. First, two stories, the life of Joseph, arguably my favorite story in the whole Bible. 
What happens in Joseph's life? Come on, you know, Joseph is betrayed by his brothers. He's sold into a life of slavery in a foreign country. Despite this, he rises in power in Egypt. And through a series of circumstances, he comes to be the second highest ranking official in all Egypt. And when his brothers come to him, desperate for food, Joseph forgives them. The family is restored and he saves the whole world. Now, do you see what the Bible is telling you? No matter what people do to you, no matter how much they stab you in the back, no matter how much they abuse you, ruin your reputation and try to hurt you. If you forgive them, you'll save the world. If you forgive them, everything will always turn out okay in the end for you and your family. Now run along, be like Joseph, suck it up and forgive. No. Is that what this story is teaching us? I mean, like God save us from the story of Joseph. Oh, but what if? What if you read it like Jesus tells you to read it? If you read it like this, where Jesus says to you, oh no, he says, I am the true, better, greater Joseph. I rose up from obscurity. I was betrayed by my brothers and sold not just in a near death, but into death itself. I am now raised up to the right hand of the true king. And you, humanity, are the ones who have betrayed me and sent me to my unjust death. But I... The true and better Joseph, whose story was about me, have forgiven you and restored you and brought you back to me. Because you have been forgiven an infinite debt against me now, you can look at my love for you and my grace for you. And out of that, yeah, 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 you can turn and forgive those who have hurt you. Here's what this means. To the degree you see Joseph's story is really about Jesus, to that degree you might be able to be and live like Joseph. One more. How about the story of Esther? Oh, we love Esther, right? We looked at it here this last fall. Esther's a beautiful, young, Jewish orphan girl taken into captivity in the Persian Empire. While she was there, she was chosen, lucky girl, right? Wink, wink, nod, nod, not really, to be the wife of Xerxes, the Persian king. And after she enters his palace, she discovers a plot to kill all the Jews in Persia. Only one catch. No one was allowed to go in before the king to plead their case uninvited. If you went uninvited into the king's presence, you could be killed. And now the only way to save her people was to reveal her secret identity as a Jew and risk her life by going before the king and pleading for her condemned people. But she does it. She does it. And her life and her people's lives are all spared. So go be like Esther. Even if it'll kill you. Even if your family will be thrown out on the street. And you'll never work another day in your life. And you'll be destitute for speaking up on the job. You should do it. As a matter of fact, what are you worried about, you coward? It worked for Esther. It'll work for you. No harm will ever come to you if you speak up for what's right. So go be like Esther. Is that what this story is about? God save us. From the story of Esther. What if you read Esther like Jesus teaches you here? What if you saw it was really all about him? The greatest beauty the world's ever seen, but disguised in another form. And what if you saw that you were actually part of a people condemned to die and that to save you, the true, greater, more, more beautiful Esther had to give up his place in the heavenly palace, identify with those condemned, go before the king to offer himself on behalf of his people. But he didn't just risk his life. He gave his life so you and I could go for And now, to the degree that you see you have been freed by someone speaking up, advocating for you, laying his life down for you, you can turn around and do that for others. See, when you hear the Bible this way, what, what happens to you? Maybe, maybe is your heart not burning within you now? Doesn't it make you want to maybe even love God, know God, trust God more? Doesn't it make you want to trust his word to you? 
See, until you see that Jesus is the true Passover lamb who's Blood saves you from judgment until you see he was the rock struck in the desert where now living water comes out for you. That he's the the true prophet of justice, all the prophets pointed to. He's the true great priest of Leviticus. He's the great king that David could never be until you see that. Oh, now, until you see that, the Bible is just like like a disconnected, impenetrable group of stories and customs and like moral exemplars and weird deals you're supposed to do. Like a cord that never resolves, but if you'll see. It's about him. Now the chord resolves. The beat drops, as the kids say. Now the meaning of life opens up to you. It's all about Jesus and you can't get enough. Your heart burns within you. And if you'll read the Bible like that, you can trust what it says because you'll see in Jesus that Jesus did not come here to, to take stuff from you, but to give you eternal life. And you can see God's heart for you through Jesus and lay your life down for him. Do you know Almost done. You know why some of you, if this is you, some of you, some of you non-Christians don't trust the Bible. It's the same reason why a lot of Christians don't read their Bibles. It's because they don't see it's all about Jesus. So what if you got up tomorrow morning, opened that Holy Bible and said, Jesus, if you showed this to your followers then, would you show me you in here today? Lord, I want to know you. I want my heart to burn within me as I see who you are, where you are, what you've done for me. God, I see it. Thank you, Pastor Morgan. Somehow help me, maybe. Trusted scientifically, culturally, personally. But I want to believe you myself. Would you show me you today? What if you did that? Guess what might happen? Your heart might burn within you. You might just meet Jesus in a new way, on a road, in a place you never expected. And see his resurrected self come and walk in that room, eat with you, have a meal with you, and transform your life. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.